Okay, so welcome. Well, um, while Susie's getting settled, I'm just gonna, um, I'm actually gonna, I'll say a few words about what's going on and how it's gonna look going forward. So um, I sent an email just to the people who had RSVP'd for tonight's in-person sitting. So, so as not to send another email to the entire list. Um, but I said that as I've been looking at the news and uh, Williams' decision about masking and the CDC guidelines for this area, I decided that um, I would just follow what the local CDC guidelines are. And right now it's, it's, make, it's saying that masks can be optional for indoor spaces in the Berkshires. So I will keep an eye on that. Um, and, but until the situation changes, that's I'll just every week I'll announce what the decision is about masking. Um, and so that's why you'll see some people here masks and some not. But I think what I also came to realize is that um, I don't think I wanna teach in this space if I actually need to be masked. Because um, you know the Zoom community is a big part of this group. And Zoom is already a bit distanced and impersonal at its best. And now if you can't even see half my face, I don't know. I mean, it, you might as well be listening to an audio recording. So, um, so as much as I think it would actually be worth it to be masked in just with an in-person community, because this is hybrid, I don't feel good about that. So at least where I'm at now is that if the situation deteriorates, and I hope it doesn't, um, then we may just go back to fully on Zoom. So, um, so anyway, but I just wanted to say this in case any of you um, were thinking of coming in person so that you knew what the situation was and why some people are masked and some are not. Um, for your own comfort and protection, of course, please wear a mask if you like to here. But if you're not comfortable being in a space with some people unmasked, I just wanted you to know that that's what the deal was. Um, <clears throat> okay. Okay. So um, welcome, everyone. And let's begin with just a few minutes of sitting. Then I'll have a few kind of framing remarks about tonight's discussion, which will be on working with attachment and aversion. Um, and then after that, we'll do a sitting, a mindfulness sitting in which we actually work with attachment and aversion. Um, and then we'll have space for discussion afterwards. So, um, so but for this initial sitting, um, it's gonna be basic breath following. Um, and so please just get in a position that's comfortable for you. <clears throat> Take a few deep in-breaths and out-breaths to help the body settle. And then just please bring your awareness to the breath in whichever way feels most natural and comfortable for you. So you could follow the breath at the tip of the nose or in your chest or in your belly, or for some of you may like to follow the breath with all three spots, just the whole breath from the entry in the nose all the way down to the belly. And just please spend a few minutes just following the breath. And if you like, you could count the breath if that has been feeling good for you.
And when thoughts or any other distraction pull you away from the breath, just take note of that and gently, ever so gently, guide your awareness back to the breath. When your mind is carried away by a thought or a feeling or some other thing that pulls you away from the breath, and you note that, it can be good to even not too quickly bring your attention back to your breath, like relax for a beat, and then gently bring your awareness back to the breath so that we're not yanking our awareness back to the breath, trying to force it to stay on the breath. Trying to minimize effortfulness, trying to relax into an awareness of the breath rather than holding it tight.
As we continue sitting, see if you can make your awareness ever more granular. See if you can notice ever finer shades of sensations as you follow the feeling of the breath. How does the breath feel at the beginning of an inhalation all the way through to the end? Okay, that's good for an opening. And excuse me, I'm gonna adjust the screen for a bit. Okay, so um, attachment and aversion. Um, in a way, I think it's, it's, it's probably like the core thing that practice works on. Um, and, uh, you know, it can, practice can sometimes start to seem very complicated when you start to introduce a lot of different kinds of practices like loving kindness, body scans, different kind gratitude practice, or all sorts of different things that we can do and they're all important and worthwhile. But it's, I think sometimes good to remember that um, the core um, issue that practice is um, helping us find some kind of different freer relationship to is attachment and aversion. Um, and this goes all the way back to the Buddha's articulation of the four noble truths. And um, I know Many of you know this, maybe all of you, but there may be some of you who um, either don't remember or maybe haven't actually um, been exposed to this aspect of um, Buddhist sort of thinking. So, um, so you know, the Buddha, uh, upon his awakening, um, said that he had discovered what are call the four different noble truths. Um, and the first is that life is suffering. Um, I'll say a little bit more about each one in a second. The second is that the cause of suffering is craving or thirst or desire. It's translated differently um, at different places and times. And the third is that there is um, a path to liberation from suffering. There is the possibility of cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path that leads us towards that liberation. Um, today, I just want to really dwell on the second, um, but the first truth, life is suffering, that the translation, that the word that's being translated as suffering is dukkha. 
Um, and it's, I think, worth saying a little bit about what that word means. Um, it does mean suffering, it means pain, but also actually um, is sometimes, I think, really nicely translated as unsatisfactoriness. So it's not that life is always painful, because obviously that's not true, right? Um, but rather that no matter what, how our lives go, there's something slightly uneasy, unsatisfactory about it. Uneasy may even be, a, it says like, even when we're happy, that happiness is often shadowed by some slight, maybe background anxiety about how long is this going to last? You know, can I hold on to this, right? Um, we experience a moment of peace, sometimes in sitting, and, and we don't like the fact that like everything, it's impermanent, right? Um, and so I've also heard the word dukkha translated as life is a bummer. And I think that's actually not a bad one. Actually, that's a translation preferred by um, uh, the guy that we've been, you know, the guy who works on concentration, um, Lee Brasington. And I, I like that. But so you get the idea, right? So it's not that life is always hell, life is always painful, but rather that life is never stable. Life, there's something that's going to be, you know, unstable, uneasy, unsatisfactory, nothing lasts. Okay. Um, and the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is tanha. And tanha is often translated as craving or thirst. And so the fact that life is impermanent, unstable, is not in and of itself a problem. It's just a fact, right? It's just how life is. And actually one of the things that's beautiful about Buddhism, in my view, is that the fact that there is suffering is not actually like a perplexing problem. For people who believe in all good deity, right? It actually becomes a genuine problem. Like why is there so much suffering in this world if an all good, all powerful God um, created this universe and what kind of God would create so much suffering. And so that gives rise to the whole branch of especially Christian theology, you know, as the Odyssey, which has to explain the ways of God to men and justify why there is the suffering there is, explain it in some way. Buddhists don't have this problem. They say life just is suffering. The problem is that we don't accept that, <laughs> you know, um, and that there is a craving for things to be other than the way they are, which can mean so many different things. Um, it could mean that what we don't have, we want. What we have, we don't want. <laughs> or, or what we have, we want to stay. Or what we don't have, we want to stay away, right? Like all sorts of different ways in which basically we're just trying to exercise control and produce stability. Um, and so essentially what we do when we practice is work with that in us, which thirsts and craves to have things a certain way. Um, so um, I wanna just read a few lines from a poem that I have read on occasion in this class, but it's, it's the one that I could frankly read like every day, I would never get tired of it. Um, it's called Relying on Mind, or it sometimes translates Faith in Mind by um, the person who's known as the third Zen ancestor in China. 
So Bodhidharma is the first Zen ancestor in China. Uh, Seng San, who died in 606 CE, Common Era, is known as a third ancestor. Um, got Dharma transmission from Bodhidharma's student. And this is a poem that he writes about what practice is. And I just, I'm reading this because I think it's a beautiful articulation of some of what I've just said in much more eloquent language, but also to show that what I'm saying is in no way like a modern reinterpretation of what practice is about, but actually goes back to some of the oldest articulations of what Zen is understood to be. So it's a very long poem. I'm only gonna read about uh, 10 or 12 lines at most, okay? It's also available on the Williamstown Zen Group webpage if anyone wants to read the full text. I highly recommend it. So Relying on Mind by Seng San. The supreme way is not difficult. It just precludes picking and choosing. Without yearning or loathing, the way is perfectly apparent. While even a hair breath difference separates heaven and earth. To see the way with your own eyes, quit agreeing and disagreeing. The battling of likes and dislikes, that is the disease of the mind. Misunderstanding the great mystery, people labor in vain for peace. I'm just gonna pause there. This, I could read more, but that's enough. Um, so it just, the Supreme Way is not difficult. It just precludes picking and choosing. Um, if only, right, it were that simple. But that's what we're working on here. It's not simple, it's not easy. In fact, it's one of the hardest things I think a human being can work on. Um, I actually spoke to a bunch of students last night, um, two of them are here now, um, about the challenges of being a college student at Williams. And I, I said, one of the things that's a shame about schools like Williams, and Williams is not unique in this respect, is that we do so much to, to teach our students knowledge and how to produce more knowledge. And yet when it comes to this kind of work, there's so little attention paid to like the inner transformation that would make all that work feel meaningful, you know, like um, full of joy, you know, um, rather than often the grind. And in fact, sometimes actually like terrible, painful grind that it can be. And I said, and I meant this, I said, getting a PhD was easy compared to learning how to meditate, you know, um, because when you do something like a PhD, you just can grind it out. It doesn't matter how your heart is or how, in fact, how your even minds, you just work, you just work, work, work. You can neglect your feelings, work, neglect your heart. You just do it. You grind it out. Well, this requires attention to the very things that we don't want to really face. And so we all deserve so much credit for being here, for doing this, even for a moment, moment after moment. Um, so, but pausing over this line, it just precludes picking and choosing. Without yearning or loathing, the way is perfectly apparent. So 
Actually, I was thinking about a line from um, the loving kindness practice that we've been doing um, recently. The, the fourth line, that at least as I've been suggesting it, um, may I or may you or may all beings be at peace. And actually, I remember Louisa over there uh, when she was on Zoom, you know, said that when she was doing it, she got in a little bit of like a, 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 a mind spiraling, right? Like, what is peace? Like, okay, what does peace mean? Is that the right phrasing, right? right? And that totally made sense to me. And I think actually the lines I just read really speak powerfully to, I think, why peace can be such a slippery, tricky term in practice. Because as soon as you turn it into something that you want, you've already, it's, it's like, it's gone. It's become a thing, right? And what's so interesting about the way Sang San talks about, he doesn't say search for peace. He says, actually, just don't pick and choose. Because I actually think that that is all peace could ever be, right? Just not picking and choosing then whatever experience you have will be an experience of peace, which may be at the same time filled with the sensations associated with anxiety or fear or grief or joy or happiness or whatever, or neutrality, right? But as long as it's not framed by picking and choosing, as long as we're not pushing something away or trying to hold on to it, we have peace. And so I think when he's saying, you know, so many people misunderstand the great mystery, and they therefore labor in vain for peace. I think that is what, what he's getting at. We come to practice and we stay in practice searching for something like peace or calm or tranquility. And just by framing our practice in that way, we make it ever more elusive. So, and I think I love this line. So I think one of the best ways of describing the kind of peace that is possible through practice is actually comes from Christianity. I love it from Paul's letter to the Philippians, the peace that passeth understanding, right? Um, I think the kind of peace that practice, genuine prayer, genuine spirituality makes possible is one that passeth understanding, cannot be grasped by the mind, cannot be understood and cannot be held in any way. And when we stop trying to hold on, that's when we have it, right? Of course, we don't really have anything. Um, and so that state in practice where you can sort of see what's going on, even see, okay, I have the intention to grasp. I, have, I feel this aversive energy, but I see it. I'm not identifying with it, right? I just see it. I think that's what Seng San is getting at when he says, without yearning or loathing the way is perfectly apparent, while even a hairbreadth difference separates heaven and earth. As soon as then we try to like move in a certain direction, hold on to something, achieve something, get somewhere, heaven and earth are separated, right? Then we have heaven, the place I want to be out there and earth where we are, rather than realizing there's no difference and just not picking and choosing they're never separated. So coming down from these you know, somewhat lofty heights, <laughs> somewhat abstract, like how does this actually affect our practice, right? So um, when we are, we're, we're about to sit, and I think what I'd like us to do is continue to follow the breath in the way we have. But I think what I was just suggesting in the first sitting was really just like 
you know, don't worry about what's going on in your mind or you know, notice when a thought or a feeling carries you away. But when you just, when you notice you're pulled away, just gently come back to the breath. This time, what I would suggest is that we experiment. And I say experiment because for each of us, it's gonna feel slightly differently. That we experiment with noting in particular energy of aversion and attachment. When we see a thought that we just don't wanna let go of, you know, maybe it's a fantasy, frankly, maybe it's a negative thought, you know, like, why can't I do this right? And just, we keep circling around that thought, you know? Um, what does it feel like to like not quite want to come back to the breath? This is a moment where you can really sense this. See, this is the thing. So you need an anchor because coming back to the anchor is when you feel the attachment. Because obviously you don't feel attachment when you're just attached, right? Then you're like, you're just spinning, right? You're just with the thought. So that's not any good, right? I mean, in very advanced forms of meditation, you can actually just follow the train of thought, but man, that's, let's, let's not even worry about that, okay? Like, let's stick with an anchor. And we notice a thought and we come back to it. And I think you guys probably all already know what I'm talking about. That feeling of, you know, like, yeah. And it's gonna, that's, it's gonna feel slightly differently for each of us. And also it's hard to articulate in language, right? Cause it's an energy, it's a quality. It's like this, so, but so for this sitting, instead of even just worrying about the content of thought, which is often what we talk like label the thought, notice the energy of attachment. And likewise, notice the energy of aversion. We have a thought or a feeling or an emotion or a sensation, and we don't want it. What does that feel like? For me, it's, and I think it's actually gonna feel differently based on the kind of thought you have and, and also um, your own temperament, right? So but even for me, I think sometimes what aversion feels like is actually like a tightening up around. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a clenching of a fist around something, which is my way of like, like kind of blocking it off. Um, or it could be a slight anxiety that comes up where I don't want to, oh, that thought I know, like, I don't want that thought. I know where that goes, you know? Um, so it might feel differently, different situations, but, and so, okay, this is so key though. So that's a really general instruction, but I think you understand, I think you'll hear where I'm coming from and just, it's like, it's just, just feel it. And it, it just note the energy. It's not going to necessarily have a content. It might, it might have like, oh, that's so good, but it's really going to be more like a pull. And the aversion may have like, oh my God, I can't go there. You may have that thought, but really what's really underlying is also the kind of like whatever it is, like the, the pushing away feeling that's internal. It's going to be more subtle than the thought and yet perhaps also more powerful. The thoughts are not a problem. See, this is the key. The content is never the problem. It's the attachment or aversion we have. So that's why starting to work with this at this level of detail is so key to achieving any kind of freedom. Now, what's the last thing I'll say, and it's so key, is that we need to be okay with the attachment and aversion. If you have attachment to the idea that you wouldn't have attachment or aversion, that's just another 
goose chase, right? Or we have aversion to your aversion, or aversion to the idea that you have attachment, or something like this, right? You want to put that's also not. So it's so easy to set up ideals. As soon as I've said what I've said, some of you are going to be like wanting to be good and to do this right. Say, oh, so the trick is actually not to get stuck in attachment aversion. No, actually, it's just to see. It's only ever just to see. You will inevitably add other things like the desire not to have it, desire to be good, desire to do it right. That's inevitable too. And just see that. Eventually, just see everything as just the unfolding of your patterns, including the pattern of wanting to be really good at this or thinking that you're no good at this, whatever your pattern may be, right? Um, this is karma. And one interesting thing to see is how a really fascinating exercise, I'll say this now for like some other time, we all engage in behaviors that we know are feeding into either attachments or aversions. Like we're just like binging on the Doritos or just actually more likely of binging on our screens, right? And just feeling that kind of icky feeling of just like, I know this isn't healthy, this is like junk food for my mind, but I just can't stop myself from like scrolling, right? Sit, not long afterwards. And what you'll see is when you identify with the moment of attachment or aversion, that's planting a karmic seed for further moments of attachment and aversion. And then don't try to escape it. Don't be the kind of person who overeats and then goes run on the treadmill, you know, as a form of like exercise anorexia, right? Um, actually be with the attachment aversion to see how karma looks up close. You know, when people talk about karma, that's all it is, like it's habits. It's patterns. Every time you do something, you plant a seed. And so the more clearly we see how every time we get lost in attachment aversion, identifying don't just see with awareness, we are planting seeds for further suffering. Um, so is like, if you, this is really such the meat and potatoes of practice, you know? Um, okay. So let's sit for a bit and um, I will offer a, repeat a bit of what I said, but not much because I think you guys know. And are there any questions at this moment, actually before we start about what I said that you'd like to have answered before we start the sitting? Carrie, oh, hold on. Yeah, actually, yeah, go ahead. Uh, all I was thinking was when you mentioned the version, I was thinking, I can't think of a thought or a, thing that come into my head but like the tickle that i feel that i like want to push it away and is, does it work the same way the physical yeah. things that distract i guess totally yeah no um okay. yeah yeah um it could be that um it could be anything you know it could even be just like i wish the people outside would be quiet or i wish i didn't feel this kind of way right now you know, yeah, anything. Actually, it's, you're right. And it's, it's probably actually more often that it's a sensation or an emotion than a thought, right? That's what we have aversion to, yeah. And that'll be interesting. Like, what do you have aversion to? Yeah. By the way, um, Jim, just because you're in the center of the screen, when Carrie asked that question, could you hear it okay? Good, awesome. Oh, okay, in, yeah, yeah. It may not be, it, it may not be, 
perfect. But okay, so let's um, get back into our sitting positions, whatever that may be for you. And of course, you're always welcome to lie down if that works best for your body. And though some of you may have come away from what I said with this kind of determination to work on your attachment aversion, <laughs> um, remember, this is actually a practice of radical gentleness, of seeing without judgment our patterns, including the patterns of attachment aversion. So though you may end up feeling loathsome about your loathing, right? Um, that's just extra. And see if you can relax into just noticing. So to begin, please just bring your awareness to your breath in whichever way you like. Now, if you fall into a deeply concentrated state and are blissing out, enjoy that. But for the rest of us who have thoughts and emotions still going on, the practice is easy. Just notice what thoughts, what emotions pull you away from the breath. And as gently as before, notice that and bring your awareness back to the breath. And as you bring your awareness back to the breath or at any other time it feels relevant, notice if you feel something that is like attachment. Maybe that's not the word you'd pick, but like a holding or kind of stickiness to the thought that you're coming back from. Or notice if you have a kind of resistance or aversion to a feeling, a sensation, a thought. And just sense in a soft way how that aversion or attachment, that picking and choosing feels in the mind and in the body. But don't get too lost in any particular moment of attachment or aversion. Notice it, see it, and then come back to the breath.
using the breath as an anchor is what will enable your concentration and awareness to become sharp enough to see attachment and aversion more clearly and therefore more freely. So keep staying with the breath, using it as a reference point, an anchor. Once in a while, it might be good to check in to make sure you can still feel the contact you're making with the seat beneath you. You can hear sounds just to make sure you're not lost in fantasy and thinking. Just a quick check and then return to the breath.
Okay. Take your time coming out of the sitting, slowly open your eyes, move your body, feel free to stretch. <clears throat> I'm going to switch the mic now to the surround sound so my voice quality won't be as good, but we'll pick up other people better. The only thing I want to say before opening the floor up is actually there's a form of attachment um, or aversion, but especially attachment that I think is really important that I didn't mention, which is the attachment we can have to a picture of ourselves. I kind of suggested, but a certain self-image. Um, and so that may, and it's sometimes you just, it's not even like a thought, it's just like a, a flash of like the kind of person I am. You just have a sense. Um, and that may be something you feel deeply hooked by. And that's a really powerful thing to work with because in the end, it's often the thing feeding most of our un, unskillful behavior in the world. Like, you know, whatever, I mean, like, I'm a nice guy, I'm not, why would you know, or whatever, things like this. Um, okay, any thoughts, questions, just sharing? Um, people who unmute, we can hear you, and hopefully you can hear us okay, so. I have a question, and I hope um, I can be heard, but also that it makes sense. Um, so one thing I've been thinking through, but trying not to, I was getting attached to it as I was sitting, but this idea of whether the quality or content of what's being attached to, or you use the phrase like held on to matters at all. So if it's that feeling of eating the Doritos, or if it's a friend who moves away and you want to hold on to that friendship. And my instinct is that it doesn't matter because it's that holding on itself and kind of the awareness of the holding on to in the context of things being fleeting or things changing that you're trying to address. And, um, but I, I didn't know, and I didn't know if other folks had thoughts about that or, anything? No, it's a really good, it's a really important question, Jenna. Um, so I, I think there are actually a lot of wrinkles to it. And so I, I don't think, you know, I, I, I would love to hear what other people to say, but um, I, I would say, so it's not about letting go of the friend, right? It's not letting go of someone you love. It's letting go of a particular attachment to a thought you have about that person, you know? Um, and I think it's so easy for us to confuse attachment with love, right? Because often love feels like attachment um, or sticky, stickiness in, in different cases. And so it might feel like, wait, I can't let go of that because that would mean letting go of the person, but it's actually, that's not true, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it is just, and also remember, it is just seeing. So what letting go amounts to is just seeing. So you're not even telling it like, go away, you're just seeing what attachment you have and that's it so the extra thought of like i'm supposed to let go of the friend that's not even really part of this right so the idea that creeps in the way i can't even like i don't even want to see this that clearly because i don't you know that's interesting right so maybe worth study the other side and this is, opens a bigger can of worms i'm not going to get into tonight but i just want to gesture toward it which is that i think the really classic buddhist formulation is we're striving for total freedom from all attachment but um Barry Majid, who I've talked about on occasion in this class, who's both a psychoanalyst and a student of Joko Becca Dharma Air, actually said, this is an ideal for renunciates who leave the world, who are living monastic lives or lives in forests. He doesn't actually think this is a super healthy ideal for lay people in the modern world. Like, do we actually wanna be free from all attachment? So, um, uh, and so 
so a certain kind of like, so there's attachment sticky, right? Like codependence, things like that. Yeah, okay, we don't need that. But attachment with our loved ones, people we care about, right? This is actually the, the basis of healthy human development in our society. And I think we don't want to give that up. So, um, and it's not an ideal to be sought after, actually free total freedom from all the attachment. So, so just to, to wrap this thought up briefly, but leave it for later, it's like people have talked about meditation as not really getting free of suffering because there's not really that possibility, but rather to suffer more skillfully or, or to, to suffer, you know, um, to be, be more skillful about the suffering that we have. And I think the same might be said about attachment. Maybe the goal is not to be free of attachment, to be attached in a skillful or thoughtful way, you know, um, and know its place in our lives and value it, um, but then see how it also operates in other ways, in ways that don't do us service. So, so, so you can see it open, it went a lot of different directions, but I hope that kind of addresses what you're getting at. Yeah. And please, other people want to respond to Jenna or offer other thoughts. Oh, Matthew, go ahead. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, it was, it was, it was quite a challenge, and and I think for me, I think the most challenging part was just since we were looking for these sensations, like what did the attachment feel like? I think that finding the language to describe, like in my mind, like you know, what what, else. um, but I, I think for me, like a, a few of the sensations that came up, I think I think one was like there's this this sense of you know, like I think. And it was almost like I was like, you know, my mind was like protecting itself. It was almost like a small child who was like, you know, bracing for, you know, something that was scary. It was just like trying to like, you know, like hiding, hiding or like being shy. And, and I think what, what was interesting is, you know, as, as I tried to, you know, label what, what, the, what the feeling was, like the bodily sensation was associated with that attachment or that aversion. I think especially with the aversion side, like, you know, I think in doing that, there was then a sense of release. Which was really, which I found really interesting. Is it is it just like instead of just kind of like you know seeing it and then like immediately like maybe like flinching like that small child that is is being shy, just like that trying even though finding the language is really difficult and hard, like it, it did lead to a sense of just kind of like physical release in a way that like oh you know don't have to be averse or afraid of these things um but no I, I felt like the the naming was was pretty was pretty difficult though because it's it's you know it's sensations that yeah don't really have like the language to describe them oftentimes thank you matthew and also actually i should add that you don't have to name i i just um i i, I don't think i meant to imply that you had to name the sensations i think just noticing what they are but it also sounds like actually in your case, naming was interesting and useful. So this is, I think, what it captured on the term experimentation, like it's worth experimenting with. But I totally understand what you mean that they're so subtle and it's hard to describe exactly. So like naming might actually be a distraction, in which case just see if you can just be with. I'm also so glad to use the word flinching because actually that is one of the ways I experience aversion, like an inner flinch, you know, and that's like, I totally resonate with me, that language. So thank you, yeah. I would just like to say that um, both craving and aversion take an enormous amount of energy, psychic energy, physical energy, mental energy. And that, that's basically what, what I just wanted to point out is when I think of it, beside it's being 
of itself, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of energy. Thank you. Thanks, Stacey. This is kind of cool, but we can hear them. So, okay, that's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> you guys are coming through crystal clear, just so you know, and we can, they can all see you, so, yeah. interesting little journey this time and um what uh what kept happening was the mention of taiwan just took me back mm. there and how um how good it made me feel this attachment i i realized oh what it, it felt like an old friend actually rather than some craving or anything mm. i have no desire to make that happen again mm but it was like just rediscovering a part of myself that um, was just interesting to see. And also I felt like, I think I, hopefully this is true, I have matured. And, um, and I felt like my attitude toward it was a little, well, more relaxed, yeah. more release, more just- Let cool, it be there. Cool with me. Mm -hmm. And this is where like, just, just noticing, right? There's no instruction beyond just see. It's not like see and then shove away or whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, Brittany, I, I, one of the things that you said in the beginning of this, um, time that I found very helpful tonight was as a sensation or a thought arises to allow it to be for a moment rather than rushing back to the breath uh, and um, because I realize there are times when I'm almost too attached to sticking to, to the breath <laughs> so to allow that experience to be there and then maybe name it or not, but, and then return to the breath was very helpful. So I thank you. I'm glad, Mary. Thank you. Yeah, I think actually I spent like actually a kind of embarrassing number of years following the breath in that really tight, laser-like focused yeah. way, really yeah. effortful. And I, it took me a while to realize this is just making me more tense. You know, I may be single-minded, but it's a very narrow form of concentration. It does not feel healthy. Yeah. Something that I noticed in the beginning is that um, I really like differentiating between aversion and attachment because I think, uh, who was it? Someone, Matt, Matthew said um, that it felt like a relief because it, it, I did feel the relief of like, oh, that's a version. I don't like having those, those thoughts actually don't feed me. And I, it was really nice to become aware of how that felt. But then I went down this trap of like judging attachment. So naming it aversion and then being attached, it like kind of became this like meta, like I couldn't get out of it. Um, so that was, I felt 
for the latter half kind of trapped in that, like, what is attachment? What is aversion? And then they all became the same thing. So that was, in, that was just a really interesting experience for me. I, I actually, I've been there, you know, you can get so meta, you know, like, you know, labeling, like labeling the thought, the, the way you label, I mean, it can, and um, it's, it's, it's insane. And, um, and I think th at those moments, sometimes I just like, I actually just stop any kind of noting or labeling and just go back to like the belly or the, the buttocks or something. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's like you're it's like you're really like very high on pot and just like spinning <laughs> or something. Yeah. Well, it's eight thirty-two, so maybe this is. Does anyone have anything else? Okay, maybe this is a successful first hybrid class. I'm pleased. All right. Um, Wonderful to see all the Zoom people. Wonderful to see all of you here. And good night, everyone. Cats are worthy of attachment. So <laughs> good night, everyone. Bye, Bernie. Thank, Thank you, Bernie. Bernie.